book of John. We love John. Amen. Amen. That's what we're going to start. Is we're going to be talking a lot about John uh, and the times that uh, Pastor Sandra has me uh, preaching for the next few uh, times. Uh, let's pray. Father God, I just come before you today. Lord, I thank you for all of our uh, new friends that have uh, come in and visited us today. We hope that we'll be seeing more of them. And Lord God, as I begin to bring forth this message, I pray that you would just uh, anoint these lips of clay, Lord, and uh, help me to uh, be able to deliver it with conviction, Lord. Uh, Lord, I thank you for sharing with me this message, and I will in turn share it to others and give us all an ear to hear, Lord, what your spirit is saying to uh, the church. And uh, bless each person here, and we pray for your anointing now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This Sunday, I'm going to start a six-part series uh, when uh, Pastor Sa uh, Sandra has me preach. And the title of it is, as you can see from the slide there, The Seven I Am Sayings from the Gospel of John. Yes. Now, um, a couple of uh, uh, months ago, I shared with you Jesus Christ, the great I Am. And now we're going to see exactly what that I Am means to you in your personal life. Uh, next slide, Randy. There are seven distinct I am sayings in the Gospel of John, and they are John 6.35, I am the bread of life. That's what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. John 10.7, I am the door of the sheep. And uh, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. I usually combine those two. Uh, sayings because they're not only in the same chapter, but they also deal with the same subject. Jesus as the shepherd and we as the sheep. And then uh, John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, uh, 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And finally, uh, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. So we're going to be looking through these on the times that I preach uh, for you. Now, next slide, uh, Randy. Um, you may wonder why this series. We're going to be talking a lot about Jesus Christ. It seems like uh, in the Wednesday studies that I'm leading right now, we've been talking about the real Jesus. And the last two messages that I've preached on uh, Jesus the great I am, and also Jesus as the picture of a biblical servant. I've been talking a lot about Jesus, and I can't think of a better person in this world than to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? I just want to lift up, I'm, I'm at the point in my life that's what really my supreme goal is to lift up the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to be talking about Jesus Christ, about his person, and what he means to us as Christians and to humanity as well. The Christian really needs to be well-versed in the person and work of Jesus Christ in order to better tell others about him. We all need to know, need to know Jesus better and what he can do for our lives. That's the key thing there. What does Jesus Christ mean to you, and what can he do in you, uh, your own personal life? Uh, next slide, Randy. The series is going to be kind of more uh, teaching rather than preaching. But there's kind of a fine line between uh, uh, teaching and preaching. You know, we can preach when we teach, and we teach when we preach at the same time. Uh, teaching is more aimed at enlightening the intellect, you know, the uh, uh, intellect of the listener. Whereas preaching is more aimed at uh, the will, you know, getting some uh, people to do something. There's something that you want to uh, move towards. And that's why preaching, you're always trying to move towards a goal. You're trying to get your listening audience to do something. And we'll talk about what I'm 
uh, trying to get you to do at the conclusion of the message. Um, when you're preaching, you're trying to get people to make a change in lifestyle, whereas with pure teaching, uh, you're not, it's not so much of a change in urge. But both of these play a part in feeding of the sheep. You know, that as the, uh, uh, an under-shepherd here, you know, uh, Pastor Sandra is the shepherd, and as an under-shepherd here, that's what I'm trying to do too, is I'm trying to feed you. I do that on Wednesday night, and I do on these uh, 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 preaching sessions too. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he talks about you've got a, apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, and then pastor and teacher. And the way it's worded in the Greek is that the pastor and the teacher are really uh, part and parcel, the same ministry there. Next slide, Randy. <clears throat> now, a brief history of the series. Uh, I first, it was first brought to my attention during my first year of Bible college uh, by a man by the name of Lyle Story, a beautiful man of God, really loved the Lord, and uh, he had a real gift of teaching. And he uh, taught about the, the seven I am sayings in a class that I took called New Testament Biblical Theology. That was 38 years ago, and I still remember it. And Lyle was just, you know, he gave me the topic here. It's kind of like the quarterback giving the ball to the halfback, and then the halfback runs with it. You know, well, I've taken that topic, and, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've run with it. I've taught it at least four times that I can recall over the course of my ministry. I've meditated on it a lot over the years, and I've refined it down to where it is now. Just like uh, uh, yesterday, I, I dug this message out. It was already written, but I went through, spent about four hours going through it, you know, going through it and refining it even further. I want to make it as practical as I can. You know, I'm not interested in just standing up here and giving you a lot of facts, but I want to give you things that you can use and apply in your own personal life. Uh, next slide, Randy. We're going to start uh, this morning with the first I am saying, which is I am the bread of life. And that's found here in the sixth chapter of John, verse 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. He that believes on me shall never thirst. Now this speaks to us, brothers and sisters, of the spiritual hunger that each one of us feels deep down inside. Deep down in your spirit, you've got you're hungering for something. You're looking for something. You're leaning, looking for meaning and fulfillment uh, to, uh, uh, to your life. And all of us has it. You know, uh, I think it was St. Augustine said that uh, we're all restless and we only find our rest when we find our rest in you. Uh, you know, it's like you have a, what's been described as a God-shaped vacuum deep inside you. And that can only be fulfilled, that can only be filled up with the living God. There are so many things that we try to fill up that void with that just never uh, work. They never really do the trick. So my question this morning is, what do you use to fill that, uh, uh, fulfill that spiritual hunger that you have in your being? You know, what will really satisfy you in a spiritual way? What do you think you really need to have peace, to have contentment, and to have happiness in li this life? What do you really need? Next slide, Randy. How does the world satisfy it? You know, uh, you know, many. That's that's what uh, the problem that many of us have is we're always listening to what the world says that we need to do to find meaning uh, and uh, contentment and happiness in life. And uh, the world says that the way that you can obtain true uh, happiness and true fulfillment in life is you pursue four things, and if you can get enough of them, uh, you'll have peace and you'll have satisfaction in this life. And these four things are fortune, fame, power, and pleasure. Do these things really satisfy the, hu the spiritual hunger? Do they really? 
The problem is that they don't really do the trick. And for the most part, the more that we get them, the more of them that we get, the more that we want them, and the less satisfied we are with what we have. Uh, I was a missionary in Thailand. Uh, most of you know that I've done missionary work over there. And we used to hand out this tract over there in uh, uh, Thailand. And on, on the front, the cover there, it uh, portrayed a very fat man. And he's surrounded by all these good things to eat, you know, uh, uh, steak and uh, potatoes and cake and ice cream and everything. And he's trying to stuff all these into his, his uh, mouth. And the uh, title of the track was in Thai, it was Hugh Mai Sang, which loosely translated means always hungry, never full. And that's the way things are in this life, aren't they? You're always hungering after these things. You're always trying to get them, but you're never going to get enough of them to really bring meaning and satisfaction to your life. Now, there's three areas of temptation that fit right into with what the world says uh, we need to pursue. Next uh, slide there, Randy. Okay, and this is found in the uh, book of 1 John. And John gives us a warning there in uh, chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And he says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof, but he who does the will of the Lord shall abide forever. That's what this scripture, this message is all about. He who does the will of the Lord, he who partakes of the bread of life will abide forever. Now, if you go down right through those, the lust of the flesh, this is the pleasure that I remember, fortune, fame, power, and pleasure, the lust of the flesh, that's the pleasure that the world tells us to go after. The lust of the eyes, well, that's the fortune that the world tells us to go after. The things, the glitz and glamour of the, the world, you know, the gold, the silver, and uh, the material possessions that, you know, each of us would like to have. Uh, but that will not fulfill you. And then finally, you have the pride of life. And this is the fame and the power that the world tells us to seek after. But again, as we're going to see that will never really fulfill us either. Next slide, Randy. Uh, uh, we're too far here. Go back up. Okay. Okay, yeah, the three areas of temptation are uh, <coughs> seen throughout Scripture. You know, at the Garden of Eden, you have the uh, story of Adam and Eve being tempted and uh, tempted them to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And it said that Eve takes a look at it and sees that the uh, tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. She also saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. So the lust of the eyes. And desire to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. She was tempted in all three areas, and she and Adam fell because of the temptation in these areas. But also, Jesus gives us an example of how we can overcome these areas of temptation. Uh, if you read uh, the story of his temptation in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, he was tempted to turn the stones into bread. So the devil was tempting him in the area of the lust of the flesh. Then he showed him all the kingdoms of the world tempted to uh, fall down in the area of the lust of the eyes. And then finally, he said, throw yourself down, you know, make a spectacle of yourself. God's going to save you. He's going to, uh, you know, save you from uh, uh, getting killed when you hit, hit, hit the uh, uh, ground because he's going to send his angels to take charge of you. And uh, so he was tempted to make a spectacle. He was being tempted in the area of the pride of life. 
And Jesus overcame all three temptations. How did he do it? He quoted scripture. And so that's how we can overcome temptation in our lives too, is quote scripture when the, the devil comes up and hassles you and uh, says, well, this would be great, wouldn't it? Then you, you know, recognize that's why you've got to know the word of God and be able to quote it back to him. Okay, so let's go on to the next slide, Randy. Uh, <clears throat> let's take an honest look at those four things that the world tells us to pursue and see if they really satisfy. First of all, did fortune really satisfy us? Fortune not only refers to money, but material possessions, particularly those that glitter and look wonderful to the eye. And the simple fact is, the more that you get, the more that you want, and the less satisfied that you are with uh, what you have. I raised up three uh, children, and I uh, noticed that whenever I or my uh, uh, father, you know, <laughs> his grandbaby, <laughs> he usually gave them more than I did. <laughs> but I discovered that very quickly, that the more you give those kids, the more they, they want, and the less satisfied they are with what they have. That's just human nature. That's just the way it is. Uh, Paul's warning to us is the love of money, not money by itself. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. I love that. Uh, that's in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. I love that chapter because, you know, you can take that chapter and write across the top of your Bible God's value system. And God's value system is different than the world uh, value system. You know, that's, that's so true. Now, if fortune really satisfied them, really satisfied us, then the happiest people in the world should be the richest, right? But is that true? Are the richest people the happiest? Uh, instead, very often they're the most miserable. When I first uh, uh, got serious with the Lord back in 1975, the two richest men in the world uh, that I, I can think of were Howard Hughes and J. Paul Getty. And Howard Hughes was so paranoid that he dropped off the radar screen for uh, uh, the last maybe... Uh, uh, 10 or 20 years of his life, and when he finally emerged, he was nothing more than a living skeleton, you know. He'd been in, in recluse. He hadn't, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, taken a, I, I guess he hadn't taken a bath for a long time, but, uh, you know, it was obvious that he was just so miserable, so paranoid, and J. Paul Getty was the same, uh, too, you know. He, he used to have to let loose a pack of dogs to run around his mansion at night because he was uh, paranoid of people coming in and breaking in. <clears throat> the more you have, it seems like, the more you got to worry that somebody's going to be out there and try to take it from you. The secret to being rich, brothers and sisters, is not having a lot of money and a lot of possessions, but being content with what you have. Paul wrote in uh, Philippians chapter uh, 4, verses 11 through uh, 13. Not that I speak in respect of want, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then he concludes it with a verse that practically everybody knows, but you know, few people really know the context that it's found in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he's talking about material possessions and what we have. Being content, that's what the, the key is. The writer of uh, <clears throat> Hebrews uh, put it this way in Hebrews chapter 13, Verse 5, he said, uh, Let your manner of living be without covetousness and be content 
with such things as you are. For he has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Again, people know I never leave you or forsake you, but he's talking about being content with what God has given you. I have a problem with the prosperity gospel. You know, people are going around saying, well, you know, if you want to be prospered, get close to Jesus. Well, the problem with that is if you are prospered, then you get the idea that the reason why you've been prospered is because you had faith. Everything that God gives us is a gift. I believe in the grace of God, brothers and sisters. You know, I don't believe in this stuff, well, you know, your faith. You know, faith is important without a doubt. But, you know, never take credit for what you have. Never take credit if you've got good health. I've got really pretty good health for a man my age, and it's a gift from God. You know, I try to take care of myself, but I know I can lose it any time, too. Next slide, Randy. Okay, does fame really satisfy us? I remember uh, back in the 70s or 80s, I think it was, uh, they had the light beer commercial, you know, with uh, Nick Bonacati, you know, one of the uh, uh, members of that uh, uh, undefeated Miami Dolphins team. You know, he kind of anchored their defense. But they were advertising this uh, light beer commercial, and at the conclusion there, he says, I'm going to make a name for myself. Anybody remember that commercial? Remember that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, in other words, I want to make a name for myself. I want, you know, that's the desire that you have to, you know, have others recognize your name and look up to you and desire to follow you or be just like you. The fact is, though, that the more fame you have, the more you are scrutinized. And some find that too much to bear. And I cited an example of that, Princess Diana. You know, Princess Diana, you know, she had all the fame in the world as the uh, uh, wife of the, uh, the crown prince uh, there of England. And she, wanted, she got to where she didn't want any part of it. And she was trying to get away from it and it cost her her life. You know, that's how she died in that car accident. They were trying to flee the paparazzi who were following her around. She didn't want the fame. You know, she just wanted a normal life. She didn't find any fulfillment in all the fame that she had. And others find that there's a heavy price to fame in having hectic schedules. For example, Michael Jackson, you know, he, uh, you know, pumped, you know, he, uh, you know, took so many downers and you know he's had such a hectic schedule he took all of the uh, downers and drugs and things like that and he wound up overdosing you know fame didn't bring him the joy and the happiness in his life either love of fame will often cause you to also to compromise your convictions you know that you have the story there in uh, just a few uh, chapters over there in John chapter uh, 12, kind of a real tragic uh, verse right here. It says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers, many also believed on him, uh, believed on Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men rather than the praise of God. That's a tragic verse, isn't it? brothers and sisters. What, and what, what stops us from confessing our faith? Is it because we do the same thing? We love the praise of men rather than the praise of God? I want the praise of God, brothers and sisters, in my life. Amen? I don't care uh, about the praise. I, I like to have people's approval. Don't get me wrong. I'm just like everybody else. But if it, comes between, if it came between the choice of the approval of men and the approval of God, I'm going to take the approval of God every time. Amen? Okay, next slide, Randy. Uh, what about power? Does power really satisfy us? Now, the lust for power has been described as being more irresistible than women and more addictive than alcohol or drugs. And very few people can handle power in a positive way. 
more often it causes us when we do come into a position of power that we abuse others or commit grievous sins to uh, obtain it, uh, to obtain it and maintain it. Uh, Lord Acton of... Uh, uh, you know, great statesman during the latter half of the 19th century in England was the one that coined this phrase, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Henry Kissinger once de described and said, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. We get the king of the hill mentality, the last... Uh, I mean, uh, a sermon I preached before. Today, I talked about the king of the hill mentality. You're always trying to be the king of the hill, you know, play that game of the king of the hill. Well, you're up on top of the hill and you push everybody down or you try to pull yourself up and become the king of the hill. And it's not just a little child's game. It's played in the corporations. It's uh, uh, played in the politicians. And regrettably, it's even played in the churches, too. You know, the, those of us that are in the church, we should be free from that. We should just be seeking to glorify Jesus. But so often we're trying to, you know, get ourselves up into that uh, top position in the churches. I, you know, I don't care about a top position in the church. I just want to be used by Jesus, you know, in whatever way that he has for me. This often leads to paranoia, too. You know, again, you're the king of the hill. You've got to worry about, you know, people pulling you down or trying to uh, uh, unseat you. Uh, Herod the Great is a great example of that. If you ever study his life, the, the one that put to death the uh, 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 children of Bethlehem, the young boys in Bethlehem, uh, two years of age and under. Why? Because he didn't want somebody else taking over his kingly position. He was married, I think, something like about uh, 10 times because he kept bumping off his wives because he thought that they were going to try to in unseat him and put one of their sons in position. And he, he also murdered a bunch of his own children because he had this king of the hill you know, mentality and he was paranoid about losing it. It's produced some of the worst crimes in human history, including the genocide of uh, Hitler and the concentration camps of uh, Stalin, Mao, and Pol Pot over there in uh, Cambodia. And it continues to be a problem over there in North Korea. You know, they've got this personality cult over there, the, the Kim dynasty. And, uh, uh, you know, they're putting people, you look at them cross-eyed, they'll put you in a concentration camp. And they'll, do it to, they'll put your family in too. Terrible crimes against uh, humanity. Next slide, uh, Randy. Finally, does pleasure really satisfy us? Pleasure in general refers to the sensual uh, realm. The things that we do uh, in and with our physical bodies that appeal to the five senses. And this means giving yourself over to sensual practices that breed a whole host of sins, including gluttony, drunkenness, sexual uh, sins, and drug addiction. And these sins are sp uh, forbidden very specifically in Scripture, such as places like uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. You have the works of the flesh there. And there's several other lists that Paul has. There's another one in uh, 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, Paul also tells us in uh, uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, verse 6, that if you're going to live for pleasure, you're dead while you yet live. A real sobering thought, isn't it? And the end result of these sins in the natural will often be damage to your own body. You know, take a look at the... Uh, uh, tobacco habit, you know, what it does to people. My, my father died of lung cancer, so I believe me, I know that. And so many people die of liver cancer that are uh, uh, drug addicts and uh, alcoholics. And of course, th there's also the uh, STDs that are so rampant, you know, from people, uh, you know, uh, going out and practicing free sex, 
you know, these are not of God. None of these are of God. And, you know, so many people get really heavy because they, they don't, they, they've controlled, you know, their, their uh, uh, hunger appetite. But, you know, God will give us, you know, a victory over that if we begin to really hunger and thirst after him. Jesus said uh, in uh, John 6.35, next slide, Randy. I am the bread of life. He that comes to me will never hung hunger. He that believes in me will never thirst. Now, it's interesting to put this uh, verse in its context. Uh, there was a big miracle that occurred just before this happened. And the miracle that happened at Jesus' Bread of Life sermon was the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, an interesting little sidelight is this is the only one of Jesus' miracles that's recorded in all four Gospels. So that kind of gives you an idea of the importance that God places on it, the fact that it's found in all four Gospels. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 was a sign. It wasn't just a miracle. It was what the Bible calls a sign. You know, it points, uh, what is a sign? It, a sign is something that points to something beyond itself. You know, when you drive into uh, uh, Fredonia and Kanab from uh, Hurricane, you know, going through uh, Colorado City, you see this sign up there that says Kanab. 61 miles. So how do you get to Kanab? Do you just stop the car and then go out there and try to climb up on the sign? Is that how you get to Kanab? No. That sign is only significant in that it points to something beyond itself. And so these miracles that were signs, uh, and there's, you know, it, it often describes them in the Gospel of John as being signs, they point to something beyond it. So the f feeding of the 5,000 then was a sign, and it's pointing to what? It's pointing to Jesus as the bread of life. <clears throat> now, the sign of the uh, feeding of the 5,000. Next uh, slide, uh, Randy. The problem of feeding 5,000 men, that's just the men, that, that didn't even include the women and children, uh, before sending them home uh, in John chapter, beginning there of John chapter uh, uh, 6. Uh, and it, it, it's verse 5, it said, Jesus lifted up his eyes, taught a great company to them, and he said unto him, you know, uh, come unto him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? So Jesus is testing them. Yeah, in verse 6 there it says, he said this to test him, for he already knew himself what he was going to do. Now, Philip is the type of uh, Christian that's got a computer for a brain. Philip says, uh, 200 denarii's uh, worth of bread is not sufficient that every one of them should take just a little. You know, got a computer for a brain, right? Got it all figured out up there. Then he uh, turns to Andrew, another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said unto him, There's a lad here who has five barley, barley lo loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? So Andrew comes a little bit closer to passing the test, but he uh, still fails in this faith test. You know, he's an interesting character in the Bible, Andrew was, always bringing people to Jesus. He brought his brother uh, Peter in chapter 1 to Jesus, and then uh, these Gentiles in chapter 12. Uh, brings a boy and his lunch over here, but uh, he falls short of the necessary faith. You know, he, he should have known better than that, though, because he was there when Jesus turned the water into wine, so obviously Jesus had power over uh, nature, so he should have had a little bit more faith. Now, Jesus goes on ahead and he feeds the 5,000 with these uh, five barley loaves and two small fish. Don't ask me how that ever transpired, but he did it. You know, 
kind of like the cruise of oil also in the book of Kings, you know, where, uh, uh, you remember the story of the cruise of oil that they kept on pouring it out and pouring it out, and it wasn't uh, until they ran out of vessels that the oil ran out. So God can do these miracles like that. But the people reacted to the uh, miracle in verses 14 and 15, and they want to force him to become king. You know, this is the, they said, this is the one, you know, the one that's going to help us throw the yoke of the Romans off, you know, uh, let's make him king. And I, I was thinking about this, you know, we, we talked about uh, power and uh, fame and everything. Jesus had it here. He was the man in their eyes. But what did he do? He dismissed the crowd and then went up into the uh, mountain to pray. He wouldn't have any part of this, uh, you know, fame and, uh, uh, <clears throat> and power that the world was going to give him. He dismissed them and went up to the mountain to pray. Next slide, Randy. Then we have the story of uh, Jesus walking on the water. You know, he dismissed the crowd and he told his disciples to go row across the Sea of Galilee and he would meet them on the other side. Well, I don't know what they thought of that, but they did what he was saying. And they're rowing the boat and then it gets into the middle of the night. They uh, had a wind that was contrary to them and then the big storm blows up. And you have the story of Jesus coming to them and walking on the water, uh, uh, verses uh, 16 through 21. Also, you see this in Matthew, uh, same miracle related in Matthew 14, verses 24 through 33. Uh, and you know the story how uh, uh, Peter, you know, uh, well, the disciples all see Jesus walking out there and they think he's a ghost and they cry out in fear and then uh, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, it's only me. You know, I'm Jesus, I'm, I'm your Lord here. I'm, I'm, I'm out here walking on the water to you. You know, you guys did a good job by doing what I tell you, told you to do. And uh, Peter, you know, typical, you know, usually would open his mouth to insert foot. But uh, he says to him, Lord, if it's really you, you know, bid me come to you, c come to you. And so, uh, you know, uh, Peter, uh, uh, Jesus tells Peter, go on ahead and come. And Peter jumps out of the boat, starts to walk on the water just like Jesus did. But then he got nervous with all the uh, sight of the, uh, you know, the heavy wind and the uh, uh, big waves and everything. And he got nervous and uh, he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink. Now, there's some lessons that you learn from this miracle, and believe me, I could uh, spend the whole day preaching on it too. But just quickly, four things that you can uh, learn from this. First of all, just because you are in the will of God does not mean that you're not going to have to endure the storms of life. Amen? Amen. And just because God uh, tells you to do something doesn't mean you're not going to have trials. And if you have trials, that doesn't, conversely, if you have trials, that doesn't mean that you're not in God's will. During that first year of Bible college that I had, uh, I'd uh, received the call to uh, go to Thailand to um, do my first missionary trip. And I kept on running into all kinds of roadblocks, you know. I think especially with my car, I had a lot of uh, uh, car expenses that were... Uh, uh, you know, taking away some of the finances that I needed to go over to make my missionary trip. And I encountered all these difficulties, and then one day the Lord said, your trials are over, you know. He had put all these trials in my path to prepare me for the ministry that he, and the missionary work that he had for me. And it was right, he was right. And right after that, those trials ceased, you know, the storms that I was encountering, ceased at that point. Second of all, we see that Jesus is able to calm the storm at will. So you may be going through a lot of things, but Jesus can just hold up his hand at any time, you know, when he feels like you've had enough, and he'll say, peace be still. 
you know i once heard this illustration that uh you know when you're in the fiery furnace jesus has one hand on the thermostat and the other hand on the timer isn't that beautiful one hand he's not going to allow you to be uh, tested beyond what you're able to bear the thermo uh, uh, the thermometer you know the thermostat there and also the timer you know when your time is finished of your trials he says time's up and you're out of the fiery furnace everything that happens to you happens in god's plan and in god's timing and in his will thirdly you need to keep your eyes on jesus at all times in your labors for him you take your eyes off of him get it on your circumstances or start trusting your own uh stuffings you know pulling yourself by your own up by your own bootstraps you're going to start falling just like peter started to fall into the water and when you get into trouble last of all you don't need a pious and flowery prayer to spur jesus into action peter didn't just say oh lord thou seest all these great waves here thou seest that i am beginning to sink i need your help now all peter said was help lord and jesus just reached out his hand and said why did you doubt oh you of little faith okay so don't have to be you know sweet and flowery and pious and everything you just call on to 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 the lord for help and he will be there to help <clears throat> next slide randy now the pre-sermon dialogue the people go looking to for him you know this is just before jesus declaration about uh, uh being the bread of life the people go looking for him uh you know jesus had a lot of uh, weird people you know not just the, the honest seekers but he had a lot of weird people uh donald grade barnhouse great preacher during the uh, first half of the uh, uh last century you know he had a, a big church and uh, people looked around and they said they, they, he's got all these hangers on you know people that wanted to follow him but just you know really weir weird and wild people and somebody went up to him and said uh uh dr bounhart how come you, you with this great ministry you've got all these weird people following you around too and his his answer was classic he said light attracts bugs <laughs> jesus knew the motivation of these people for seeking him they were seeking another handout verse 26 there jesus said answered them and said verily verily i say unto you you seek me not because you saw the miracles but you did eat of the loaves and were filled in other words you're looking for another free handout i i fed you before now you're looking for another free handout <clears throat> and you know th this is so true also uh Jesus understood how men were if you uh, flip back a couple of uh, chapters to the end of chapter 2 Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover of the feast many saw his name and when they saw the, the miracles that he did but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and did not need that any uh, should testify of man for he knew what was in men he knew no He knew what was in their hearts. He knew why they were seeking him here in John chapter 6. They were looking for that uh, free handout again. Verse 27 starts the dialogue between Jesus and the people that will dominate the rest of the chapter. And the people are constantly uh, consistently being in the physical realm, wanting to fill up their bellies with physical food, and Jesus is will constantly be seeking to draw them into the spiritual realm. next uh, slide uh, Randy Jesus more main point in the dialogue uh we won't take the time to read them all I've I've uh, listed some of the uh uh 
point there in the uh, verses that you can fo follow that. Uh, his main points in, in, in the dialogue is that partaking of physical food alone will still end up in death. Constantly, he said, uh, you, you, your fathers ate of the uh, loaves and are now dead. Second of all, Jesus alone can supply the spiritual food which leads to eternal life. Number three, Jesus means for us to take his words in here in a spiritual flesh. You know, he, he, in this uh, 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 chapter here, he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Do we take that in a crass, literal way? He's talking about it in a spiritual sense. And just in case you missed that point, he tells you that in verse 63. It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits for nothing. The words that I say unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Amen? Another example that proves this is uh, Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice and will open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Is he talking about a literal door like that? No, he's talking about the door of your heart and letting him into your heart so that he can have fellowship with you, that he can sup with you. Again, sup, have, have supper. In other words, he will feed you of him, he himself, the bread of life. Now, the people constantly misunderstood and constantly tried to interpret what he was saying literally. But he did not intend for it to be literal. He intended for it to be spiritual. Next slide, Randy. Now, this is a serious hermeneutical error. Uh, I've been teaching the last few weeks about uh, the real Jesus, but it's part of my larger ser series, uh, Introduction to Biblical Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, for those of you that are unfamiliar with the word, is the science and the art of biblical interpretation. There are certain basic principles that you have to use in interpreting the Bible as you do in all literature. You have to consider things like context. You ha have to consider also figurative language when it's used. The hermeneutical errors that uh, 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 what lead to the rise of the cults out of the church and sometimes even in the church itself. Because the Roman Catholic Church takes this very scripture here in John chapter 6 and they interpret it to mean that when the... Uh, uh, <clears throat> bread and the wine are blessed by the priest that they become literally the body and blood of the Lord. And that's why you have to partake of the Mass, and if you don't ha partake of the Mass, you're not going to have eternal life. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all in here. He says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. This is a hermeneutical error that's called letterism. That is, you take everything in a passage in a hyper-literal sense, even when it's obviously not meant to be taken literally. You know, that's what baffled these Jews that were taking him uh, literally. They said, how can this man give his flesh to eat and his uh, blood to drink? You know, that's cannibalism. So, here letterism, if you, you abide by the hermeneutical, hermeneutical error letterism, it will lead you to believe that Jesus is literally talking about his physical flesh and blood. They also like to quote uh, Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 26 through 28, where Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, you know, which is broken for you, uh, you know, take, drink, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. They take it hyper-literally and say that the elements are literally the body and the blood of the Lord, and that's not what he meant. You know, the Lord's Supper is a remembrance. Do, this do ye 
in remembrance of me. You know, we need that to take partake of communion, and I like the way that we do it here at this church, taking it one <coughs> once a month. You know, if you take it every week, then too often it just becomes old hat to you. You know, and I but I've been part of church, a church, another church that only did it once once a, a year. You know, at, at Easter, and I I think that's. Uh, you know, I think you need to be remembered of the Lord's sacrifice for you on the cross more often than that. Another good example of this hyperliteralism, this letterism, is the Mormons and uh, uh, anthropomorphism, the terms used in the uh, uh, Old Testament, where it talks about the eye of the Lord, the ear of the Lord, uh, the nose of the Lord, the mouth of the Lord. They take this literally, and they, they say that that refers to God the Father having a literal a body of flesh and bone. But Jesus uh, tells us that that's not true. He says God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit in, and in truth. I'm glad that God's a spirit. You know that? Amen? Amen? That means that God is everywhere. He's not some off some, you know, in other planet or something like that in a physical body. He's everywhere at once. I can... Fellowship, I can meet with him and fellowship with him. And Jesus has his body of flesh and bone, but he's present here. He's present inside me in the person of the Holy Spirit. So I can commune with Jesus anywhere I want to. Amen? Okay, next slide. We're wrapping things up now. What does this mean to you? It means to really fulfill the void in your heart, you need to have fellowship with God on a daily basis. And not just on a daily basis, you know, uh, <clears throat> Jesus talked about picking up your cross daily, didn't he? Did he just mean you, you pick it up once a day? No, he meant you pick it up every hour. He pick, means you pick it up every minute. He means you pick it up every second because picking up your cross is really what it means is living a life of deep surrender with Jesus. And that's how you partake uh, of him as the bread of life. You surrender to him. That's how you fulfill the void in your house and how you have fellowship with him daily. It's the meaning of the words, I will sup with him and he with me. You want to be there in the, inside the room of your heart. You know, I've taught another, uh, uh, you know, My Heart Christ Home. Anybody ever seen that before? My Heart Christ Home? It's written by Robert Boyd Munger. Really great. It uh, takes the human heart and it divides it up into different sections. You've got the living room, you know, the, you've got the dining room, the thing that you feed yourself with. You know, you've got the rec room. You know, how do you spend your spare time? You know, it's a really great thing. But, uh, you know, it, it all ties in with this, you know, that God wants to be there in the, uh, you know, he wants you to open up the door of your heart so he can be there in the uh, home of your heart. He wants to be at home uh, with you on a daily basis. Secondly, you don't listen to what the world tells you to follow after, you know, when it tells you to follow after fortune, fame, power, and pleasure. Those will not satisfy the void in your heart, the deepest longings that you will have as a uh, person. You don't take a hyper-literal interpretation of John chapter 6. The uh, bread and the cup at communion do not literally become the body and blood of the Lord. Instead, the Lord's Supper is a memorial of, of what he did for us at the cross. And all of this battles uh, boils down to a matter of control. That is, what or who is going to control your life? Uh, is it going to be the sin energized uh, nature energized by the na uh, three areas of temptation? Is it going to be your carnal nature? Is it going to be a church? Or are you going to let the Lord himself uh, run your life? Uh, the choice is yours. By the way, I didn't mention this before, but as Christians we have three enemies. The world, the flesh, 
and the devil. The devil uses the world and the world system, the world's way of thinking, to tempt us, to you know, stir up that uh, carnal nature, you know, the fleshly nature that you have, and that's how you fall into sin. So keep in mind to guard yourself against those three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Last slide, Uh, what can you do to make Jesus the bread of life in your personal life? First of all, you get back to the basics of the Christian life. No matter how far you go, you know, how much you get involved in ministry, there's always these basics that you have to come back to. And so often we get sidetracked for them rather than to seek, you know, we forget them. We start to make the Christian life a little bit too complicated. But it's really not complicated at all. You just keep coming back to the basics. And those basics are prayer. You open the door of your heart and you sup with him daily. Revelation 3.20. Draw nigh to him and he will draw nigh to you. James chapter 4, verse 8. Second of all, Bible study. We all know this. We can all quote that scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's your daily bread right there. Luke 4, 4. Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Be ye transformed. There's one uh, uh, translation, I think it's J.B. Lightfoot, uh, Lightfoot said, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's what the world will do. It will squeeze you into its mold if you listen to it. And the way that you don't listen to it is you listen to what God says in his holy word. Amen? Amen. Thirdly, you worship. Psalm 22, verse 3. God tells the children of Israel, uh, you inhabit this, the praises uh, of is Israel. It, it's really talking about God being enthroned. You know, that's why we always have worship. And that's a, the great time to have worship is to begin the service. And that's why we enthrone God through our praises and worship. If you're having problems with things in your life, crowding God out, learn to praise him. And that way you put him back on the throne of your heart. You fellowship with uh, other Christians. Hebrews 10.25, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the matter of some, but exhorting one another and so much more the, as you see the day approaching. Fellowship with the fellow Christians is so important. You know, you're a coal of fire. And if you take a coal of fire out and leave it by itself, what happens? It dies out. But if you put it in with other coals, it stays warm. Amen? And finally, witnessing to an unbelieving world. Acts chapter 13, verse 52, describes uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas. They just got kicked out of uh, a city, Pisidia Antioch. I looked that up today. Yeah, they just got kicked out of the city. They shook the dust off of their feet against it, but it says they went out full of joy and the Holy Ghost. You know, I, I've noticed something, brothers and sisters. The people that witness the most seem to be the happiest people I ever run into. They've got that joy of the Lord. And if you learn to do the Lord's work and witness for him, 
you'll discover that joy too. Amen? You resist temptation. James 4, verse 7, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And finally, you put away the things that displease him. 1 John 5, 21, great epistle by uh, uh, the apostle John. He ends it up with this thought. He said, little children, keep yourselves from idols. The idols that come in and crowd things out. What's the greatest commandment? First commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Those are the idols there. Okay, so you want to have joy? You want to have peace? You want to have love in your life? You want to have those fruit, the, that, those manifestations of the fruit? You make Jesus the Lord of your life.